0: It was just amazing how much you could learn by just sort of peeking into people's lives.
1: this week's episode of the Mixtape podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Anna Azer, professor of economics at Brown University in Rhode Island and editor in chief of the Journal of Human Resources. I have had a keen interest in Anna Azer uh, and her career and her work for a couple of reasons, just actually a lot, but here's two. Uh, first, she did her PhD at UCLA when Janet Curry was there, as well as when Hito Imbins was there. Inman's taught there after he left Harvard, for those of you that remember that interview I did with him. Recall my overarching conviction that Princeton's industrial relations section, which was where Orly Ashenfelter, David Card, Alan Krueger, Bob Malone, Josh Anguish, Angrist originated from, as well as Janet Curry. And you'll at my conviction that this was kind of the ground zero of design-based causal inference, and that design-based causal inference spread through Economics, not really through econometrics uh, and econometrics textbooks, but really through applied people. She uh, also works with Adriana uh, Laris Mooney, who's also at UCLA now. Who was a student of Rajiv Dehejia, who wrote a seminal work in economics using propensity scores. Who was also Josh Angrist's student at MIT. So you can kind of see Anna fits my real my obsession with like a sociological mapping out of the spread of causal inference through the applied community, but. Putting aside Anna as being like, in, you know, instrumentally interesting, uh, uh, I am directly interested in her and her work on domestic violence and youth incarceration, among other things. I've followed it super closely, teach a lot of these papers all the time, think about them even more. So, in this episode, we basically walk through her early life in Manhattan, to her uh, time at Amherst College, to her first jobs working in nonprofits in areas of reform uh, and poverty to graduate school. Uh, We talked about her thoughts about domestic violence and poverty and crime along the way too. And it was just a real honor and a pleasure uh, to get to talk to her. And I hope you like it as much as me. Uh, My name is Scott Cunningham and this is Mixtape Podcast. Okay, it's really great to uh, introduce uh, the, my uh, my guest this week on the podcast, Anna Azer. Anna, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks so much for inviting me.
1: Before we get started, could you tell tell us uh, your na- obviously your name and your your uh, your training and where you work?
0: Sure. Uh, so I'm a professor of economics at Brown University. I did my PhD at UCLA. Well, many years ago. Um, Before that, actually, I got a master's in public health. So I I kind of have a strong uh, public health sort of interest and focus in a lot of my work. Um, I'm also currently the co-director of the NVR program on children. Mm -hmm. That is a program at the NVR that is focused entirely on the economics of children and families. Mm -hmm. And I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Human Resources.
1: Great. It's so nice to to meet in person. I've been a, uh, long time, uh, reader of your papers because, uh, you write about these topics on, uh, violence against women. And, um, there's not a lot of people in economics that, that do. And so, uh, and the way that you approach it is sort of like, it shares a lot of my own thoughts. So I'm going to talk about it later, but it's really nice to, to meet in person.
0: Sure. Nice to meet you too.
1: Okay. Well, so, uh. I want to sort of break up the conversation a little bit into your your uh, like first part. Just sort of talk about your life growing up. So, uh, and then the second part, I want to talk about sort of research stuff. Um, so, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York
0: City. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did.
1: Wait, which uh, which borough was it?
0: Manhattan. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Upper East Side. Uh, but when I went off to college, I went to rural Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Amherst, which is a very small liberal arts college in the Berkshires. Yeah, that was a very different experience for me. Uh, And believe it or not, I was not an econ major. Oh, you weren't? In fact, I was not. I only took one econ course my entire four years in college.
1: Oh, wow. Wait, so what did you major in?
0: I majored in American studies. So, with a focus on colonial American history and literature.
1: Mm, on literature oh that's what i majored in too yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 oh wow so early american history so what was this was like the 1700s or even yeah like, so i did a
0: lot of 17 1800s a lot of sort of the new republic period uh, and my undergraduate thesis was actually on girls schooling in the early republic oh wow
1: yeah. oh, wait what was the deal with girls schooling in the early republic what was the
0: deal with the girls schooling well it depends so Uh, So for most of the Northeast, the focus on girls schooling was really this idea that it was a new country, they were going to have to have leaders in this new country, and someone had to educate those leaders. Someone had to educate those little boys to grow up, to go ahead and and lead this country. And so the idea was, well, we had to start educating moms so that they could uh, rear uh, boys who could oh. then go on
1: to, to this great nation. It's, I see. <laughs> so. women, women's education was an input in male leadership.
0: That's correct.
1: Got it. Got yeah. it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I get yeah. that. I, I, uh, you start educating women, though. I, I suspect that uh, you get more than just male leaders.
0: I think that's right, that was an <laughs> unintended consequence. Unintended
1: consequence, yeah. they'd they think that far ahead. Okay. Yeah,
0: so so two sort of infamous, you know, that's quite, that's a good, that's a very good point to make because um, two women who were uh, educated in, in one of the first schools dedicated to, to educating women so that they could go on and uh, rear uh, their boys to be strong leaders, were Catherine Beecher, who oh. um, went on to create one of the most important female, you know, girls' schools in Troy, New York, mm. and uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, of course, yeah. who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin.
1: <clears throat> they're connect. They're related. Yeah,
0: they, they, they their are daughter. sisters. They are oh, sisters, sister. and they they went on. They they were one of the the first sort of sets of girls who were educated uh, in this mindset of we need leaders, so let's uh, have some educated moms. Mm. And they of course had other ideas and they went and formed schools and, and wrote incredibly important um, works of, of fiction that that ended up you know, playing a, a pretty significant role in, in uh, the civil war.
1: Wow. Course. You think that was, was this a thing you, over in England too? Or was this just an American deal?
0: Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Huh. I guess they have a different production function for leaders in England where as we, it's like very decentralized here or something. Right.
0: Right. So you're saying in England, they already had sort of their system of, yeah, you go to Eden and then you go to Cambridge or Oxford. Right. I think that's probably right. So we right. don't have that here.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you don't even have, I mean, you're like creating everything from scratch and with such a reactionary response to England, who knows what kinds of revolutionary approaches you're taking. Uh, I mean, I I guess that is kind of, that's probably pretty revolutionary, right? Like say we're going to we're going to teach women, even though it's kind of like in order to produce male leaders, it's still like thinking outside the box a little bit.
0: Yeah. I suppose that's true. Yeah.
1: That's cool. So how yeah. come you didn't end up in, so you end up at Amherst. Well, so as a kid in Manhattan, what were you doing? Like, were you interested? Was this, you were like reading books and stuff? You were like a big reader?
0: Uh, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, I suppose so.
1: Is that yeah. what drew you to Amherst at Liberal Arts College?
0: I don't really know. I mean, i i I don't think I actually knew what I wanted until much later in life. Mm. And so I was an American studies major, which was really at the time I, I, I actually, I learned a lot, Um, but I don't think it took me a while to sort of gravitate to economics. And uh, once I did, it was clear that that was really the right path
1: for me. Yeah. One question I want to leave your kid. So did your parents let you uh, ride the subway when you were? little. Oh yes. Oh gosh, (laughs) I bet that was so cool.
0: Oh yes. So You know, I grew up in the in New York City during the 70s and 80s, which was far more dangerous than yeah. it was today. But at that time, parents had a much more hands-off approach to parenting. Yeah. And so I was, I think I was eight years old when I started taking public transportation by myself.
1: Oh, my gosh. So it's yeah. like you're, a, is it like there was like latchkey parents sure. back then? So you're just sure. like, you just like... Jump on the jump on the subway. Where are you going at eight years old in Manhattan? You go to
0: school. You You're just catching school? the
1: subway to go to school.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, it's so cool. I bet you had a, I bet you had a great childhood.
0: I have to say, it was pretty good. Oh man, I can't that's, complain.
1: Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Mississippi, but it was the same kind of thing. You, I mean, it, well, it was very different than than Manhattan, but just being able to. Being able to have that level of, you know, it's like all survivor bias, like the, the other kids that are getting right. really neglected and abused, like right. but the, those of us that made it out a lot it's like, all you have is great memories of, of being able to do whatever. Right. Agreed. Um, so what? So you gra- So you wrote this thesis? So like at Amherst, did everybody write a thesis? Is that real common? Most people did, like- did. I think
0: like a third oh, okay. of the students wrote a thesis. It was very common.
1: But you're like gravitating towards research, like research, though.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it was clear that I really, really enjoyed that a yeah. lot. Um, and in fact, more recently in my economic research, I have done a lot more historical work.
1: Oh, yeah. Than I had
0: done initially. So I think that training has really come in handy.
1: Yeah. What did you like about that project that you wrote your thesis on? What did it Well, make- it was
0: really a lot of fun. So I focused on two schools in particular. I focused mm. on this school in uh, Litchfield, Connecticut, and another school in um, Pennsylvania, a Quaker school in uh-huh. Westtown. And uh, those, I focused on those two schools because those two schools for whatever reason, kept a lot of their records. They have
1: oh my God. Really, wonderful,
0: yeah, so you have really wonderful archives where you could kind of just go through and read all about what they were thinking about when they founded the schools, what the curriculum should be like, and even some of the writings of some of the students and teachers.
2: Oh
1: my God.
0: Um, so it was really just a tremendous amount of fun uh, to, to read all of that stuff, all that yeah. sort of primary materials.
1: Oh, my gosh! Wait, did you actually have the names of the kids? Do you see sure. their census
0: records and stuff? Oh, I guess you could. I mean, this was so long ago before oh people were gosh. doing all that kind of cool linking, but yeah, you you absolutely could.
1: Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, where those kids ended up. I mean, yeah, so so you so you what did it make you feel doing that research? That was so original and just like being out there in these like archives.
0: Well, it was just amazing how much you could learn by just sort of peeking into people's lives, you know, and it it was just really, um, it was really exciting. It was really fun. Uh, And you just felt like you were discovering something new.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you liked that. I mean, so, but that's interesting because some people would be like, oh, discovering something new. That's not, I don't even care about that. But you like, when you were discovering something new, you were like, I like this feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I really did. Yeah, I really uh, did. Yeah. So what happened? So you graduate.
0: So I graduated. uh, And then I, so my first job was actually working for an alternative to incarceration program in New York City. So I moved back home. And you have to remember, this was sort of early, Mm -hmm. Mm mid-90s. And this was sort of the peak in terms of crime rates in the country and in New York City in particular.
1: Yeah.
0: And the jail. Was that
1: a conversation, before you say this? When you were like growing up, did your parents were was it like you, you noted like people were cognizant? I mean, it's like now you kind of know, oh, it was the peak because like it's fallen so much. But like, right. what what was the conversation like as a kid about crime?
0: Well, so in the '90s in New York City at this time, that was really the crack cocaine epidemic, yeah, and so there was a lot of talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that really did dominate a lot of the media. At the time, and uh, you know, it really was sort of a big, a big concern. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as we know, the the city and the state, not just in New York but nationally, really responded with very tough on crime yeah. approach. Started incarcerating a lot of people. Right. Um, so much so that they were really kind of out of space in the New York City Jail. So Rikers Island was kind of at capacity, Mm. even upstate prisons were pretty full. And so the city, not because they were concerned that we were putting too many people in jail, which has, you know, after the fact, we know that we had really, we did put too many people in jail, that there was a cost to these incredibly high incarceration rates. At the time, The concern was that we don't have enough space. So what are we gonna do? And so the city funded an alternative to incarceration program for youth. So it was called the Court Employment Project, and it was really focused on kids between the ages of 16 and 21 who were charged with a felony Mm. in New York State Supreme Court.
2: Mm.
0: And these were kids who were being charged as adults, treated as adults in the system. Right. Uh, New York City. Uh, has since raised the age of majority, but at that time it was 16. Mm. So we were focused on really younger, you know, 16, 16 to 21. Well, most of the kids we were working with are 16 to 18. What kind of felonies are we talking about? Is this um, is
1: it drug felonies or is it? yeah? So criminal?
0: A lot of it was, you know, possession with intent to sell, selling, but also robbery. Um, that was, that was pretty common as well. Yeah. And so we were only working with kids that were facing at least six months in, uh, in adult prison, essentially. Mm. Uh, that was the, the rule uh, for our program, because, again, our program was really focused on trying to reduce the number of people who were being detained and, incarceration, and incarcerated for long periods of time. Uh, so we were only dealing with people who. Wait real had, quick.
1: So what are you're like, uh, like in your early twenties?
0: Yeah. So I would have been about 23.
1: How did you find this gig where, where you were just going back to New York city or what was the deal? Yeah.
0: So I knew I wanted to go back home.
1: Yeah. And
0: at that time, you know, jobs were advertised in the paper. Yeah, and yeah. so you looked through the help wanted ads and you just sent, you know, cover letters and resumes by mail. Yeah. To, you know whatever job sort of appeal to you and yeah. so I was interested in those jobs I was also interested in working with the um, with public defenders so the legal aid society in New York I applied for a number of jobs there um so well yeah. so where's this coming from?
1: What, what's your values exactly at this time you're like concerned like, about poverty or concerned yeah, about
0: I think I guess I already was really worried. I was really sort of concerned about um, low income kids who were were really sort of um, I felt already were getting sort of derailed in at very young ages in a way that I thought would be very hard for them to recover. Yeah, and I think that in, that sort of sense was really confirmed when I started working. That these were kids who, you know, in a, in a split minute, their lives were just totally changed. I know. So certainly in the case of things like robberies, these were yeah. often, you know, group of kids with not much to do, just kind of getting into trouble. Yeah. And it just getting too far, too quick. Yeah. And before they knew it, they were facing two to six years. I mean, it was just really tragic. Yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah so um, I know six months you go you you think about it too you're like you're looking at these like six months in the prod in the in the the program that you start looking at six months and you think oh it's six months the thing is those things cascade because six months with a record a felony record serving prison becomes uh, becomes de facto a cycle of repeated six months one year two years sure. and you're just you're you just end up uh well that's going to be a paper that you end up writing so i'll hold off on that but like uh yeah so okay so you end up applying you kind of like spray the, the the city with all these resumes and then this this thing so what is this company this is this is a nonprofit.
0: yep so it's a nonprofit that had a contract with the city oh. um so they had a contract with the city and you know they Again, they were funded really because the city could not afford uh, to put any more people on Rikers. Oh, so so it's like a space. mass
1: incarceration like response almost. Yeah. Capacity construction. They were at know.
0: capacity. Yeah, so right. they needed to do something. Yeah. And uh, so what this program was, it was an intensive supervision program. So the kids had to come in at least twice a week and meet with the, a counselor. Yeah. The counselor would, you know, kind of provide counseling services, and also kind of check in on them, make sure they're going to school or working or getting their TED. Mm-hmm. And then they would write up these sort of long reports. I only worked in the courts. So I, do, I wasn't doing any of the counseling myself. I had no qualifications right. uh, to do that. I worked in the courts, So my job was to screen kids for eligibility for the program, interview them, see if they were sort of good candidates, then talk to their families, talk to their lawyers, uh, and then talk to the judge eventually sort of about the program and about what we would be doing and why we thought this person was a good candidate. Yeah. Uh, and then once they were in the program, I would then provide uh, updates or reports back to the judge and the defense attorney to let them know how the individual was doing. And wait, what is
1: the treatment gonna be that these that's things are doing?
0: Again,
1: it's a a deferment of
0: like, yeah, that's exactly right. So the idea is if they made it through the program, it was a six month program. If they made it through after six months, they would be sentenced to probation Mm. instead of jail time.
1: Yeah. Like a deferred adjudication kind of type concept, right? right? Yeah, exactly.
0: So that was the idea.
1: Yeah. Um, But it's non-random. I I know you're not, you're not thinking about. This like the future right. Anna Azer is right. not then, but yeah. like, but it's not random. Yeah, no. like what like is random. it? What is it conditioned on? Because you're doing all this, like you're doing, right. All
0: right, right? Right. So you would look at a kid's record. Yeah. You would look at whether or not the kids seem to have support. So the downside was, if a kid didn't make it through the program, yeah, uh, they might be sentenced to more time. Really. Then they would have maybe. I mean, the judge would- say because your you don't, you're
1: don't, you getting a new judge or something?
0: No, it's the same judge, but the judge says, look, I'm going to give you a chance. Oh. I'm going to, instead of sending you away now for yeah. six to 18, right? I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of prove yourself six months, stay out of trouble, complete this program, and then I'm going to send it to probation. Yeah. But if you don't complete the program, I'm going to yeah. send it to you more. Whether they, you know, whether they, in the end, in the end, they might not have actually done that. They certainly yeah. didn't tie their hands in any way.
1: What are they, they doing? Do. Why are they doing that? Why is the judge doing that? They're trying to make it. They're trying to deal with some sort of like uh, adverse selection or something. Like they don't want. Well, I think they, like,
0: they they want the kid. They want to create an incentive for the
1: kid. They're too. trying to create an incentive for the kid. Got it. You okay. know, they, with like a little scared straight thing kind of. A like little.
0: A, I mean, the yeah. judges always think that. You know? Right. Right. It's not clear. That's. It's not clear that that works. I, yeah. You know, I don't think that really. Matters so much in the decision making of young people, I think.
1: Right. Yeah, totally.
0: Totally. But that is certainly was on the mind, I think, of many of the judges.
1: It's funny, though, you know, when I think about this paper that we're going to talk about a little bit, like it's like you're already (laughs) aware of, oh, these judges kind of like have a little bit of discretion. They're like kind of they're like saying a bunch of stuff that's like not in the law. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like if you don't do this, I'm going to give you a big I'm going to, you know, penalize. I'm going to give you a really bad grade at the end with like yeah. another year in prison. Like, whereas I mean, that that did that cross your mind that you were kind of noticing that judges were like, you know, like this judge does that and this other judge does not tend to do that. Is that yeah. something you could have noticed?
0: Absolutely. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there were many, many judges. Great, right. so this is Manhattan. This is the main criminal courts in Manhattan. So I have many, many judges, a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and there were, the way it works is once you've been indicted on a felony, mm-hmm. you come before one of these three judges, they're called conference judges, and they you, they try to dispose of the case, either the case gets dismissed or they take a plea deal. But if that doesn't happen, your they they reach into a bin it's literally a lottery it's like a
1: bingo ball machine it's
0: a lottery with all these different uh you know bases judges courtrooms yeah and it they pull out a they pull out a number
1: yeah
0: and that's the number of the courtroom you get assigned to yeah and you know right then if you get assigned to certain judges for sure that kid is going to do jail time <laughs> and if you get assigned to other judges for sure that kid is going to get probation
1: who knows this the kids don't they they the don't but they, they can't they, comprehend they don't it know that.
0: it but their but their attorney will know it,
1: and then maybe their parents although it's like no, you're, you're with a group of kids that maybe their parents aren't as
0: i don't think their parents would know it either you would know it because you have to remember that all of the judges
1: mm-hmm. for
0: the most part were either defense attorneys or yeah. prosecutors before yeah. they were judges and and you can tell,
1: yeah. The judges uh, who are—is right. that who the main mentioned? source of the discretion? I
0: think so. Yeah. I think so. I think uh, the judges who are. Yeah. I mean, they're just prosecuted. such
1: different. Yeah, it does seem like the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are almost like cut from a completely different yeah worldview and set of values.
0: I think that's right.
1: I had this friend that was a public defender in uh, Athens, and he was like, he was like, I, mean, I think this is what he said. I I'm not going to say his name because I don't. He probably didn't say this, but like I thought he basically said. I don't like prosecutors because they think they are always guilty yeah they were like they and and it's like and you could tell like the public defendant they were like my whole job is to not do that you know right. and i just imagine that shaping either there's a lot of selection into that or that just really you know you hear that all the time that's just gotta have there's gotta be human capital with that
0: yeah so i do i agree so I think they have a different perspective, which is what draws them to you know, either defense work or prosecutorial work. Mm-hmm. But then you have to remember their jobs are really very different. So the prosecutor, he's or she is just dealing with the victims, yeah. right? So that's who they're talking to all day. Right. The defense attorney is, is talking to the, to the defendant oh, and getting yeah. to know them and their families. And so they really just have very different sympathies yeah, and um, the judges come from one or the other.
1: One or the other, so and so you can you're, see it. So you're a kid, you're like young person. What is you? What are you feeling over the course of this working with this? Like, tell me, tell me a little bit about your your growth and the thoughts that you're thinking about. Yeah.
0: So I mean, I I really felt like these were kids that just got derailed, mm. right? I mean, that these were kids. They were in a very tough situation and they made a decision and they had no idea what the consequences of that were going to be. Yeah. Nor should they have. You know, they were 16. It's very hard to know where these things end up. And yeah. I did feel as though the criminal justice system was way too harsh.
1: You could tell. But, that, that, yeah. I mean, that, that was like because the whole point of this nonprofit you're working on is like a response to an ex- such an excessive amount of penalization they literally don't have yeah any room. yeah they don't have, any, they don't have any room for anybody yeah yeah
0: they, they had no room
1: you're like that's exactly we're, we're right. doing so much punishment we that's exactly we can't even do it right
0: that's exactly
1: right
0: yeah, yeah. and you know these kids they had um you know they 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 in the in the juvenile justice and criminal justice system, more generally, there's a disproportionate involvement of black and Hispanic youth. Yeah. But they are 100% poor. Yeah,
1: right. So that's
0: the other thing. And that's that just thing. seemed incredibly unfair to
1: me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right.
0: Uh, that the you know, poor kids just, you know, and it's not the case that not poor kids don't also mess up right they do
1: yeah they just can Um, like avoid the like the 10,000 there's 10,000 choice there's 10,000 events from the mess up to the things that these kids are facing in this program that they like have many like ways of mitigating it yeah yeah that's right There's even like in terms of like parents spending a ton of money to like or just saying you can't hang out with these people or it's like there's like a bunch of stuff that Like poor families just are like, look, I, I mean, yeah, I completely, I can. So you're feeling heavy hearted or you're, what are you, so you're like, you, you could have gone in a different direction. You could have not gone to graduate school or gone to this master's. So what, what's the decision criteria where you're, you're thinking, I've got to go in a new direction.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, at a certain point, you know, I, I just felt as though I needed more training, Mm. And I felt that, you know, so I wanted more of a professional degree. So i got a degree in public health where you learned a lot about, you know, the health system and financing and the, the social determinants of health. Mm. And I just, you know, I, I felt like I needed, again, more more training. I should say I went from that job, not directly back to graduate school, but I, I went and I worked in a... a not a homeless shelter, but a, a service center for homeless people also oh. in New York city. So I work, I went from the criminal justice system to the homeless system. Oh. Uh, and I was there for another year. And then I went back
1: to school. So what, like two or three years total between Amherst and graduate That's school?
0: correct. Yeah, Yeah. That's
1: correct. So you thought, but it's interesting you go to public health because not, because like, I think like a lot of people that don't know anything about anything, they'll be like, Well, she's, she's doing criminal justice. She's doing, so I could have seen her going to law school. She's going to, now she's going to the homeless thing. Okay. Well, maybe she could do social work. So how did you, what were the things you were thinking of and how did you end up choosing public health? Because a lot of people don't associate either of those things with public health. Right. They they heard the word health.
0: Right. So a couple of things. One, um, you know, I thought about law school, but I felt as though, Lawyers deal with the problem after it's happened. Right. And I felt like maybe we should focus more on preventing
1: <laughs> right uh,
0: so and and the other thing when I work with homeless people, I really did start to feel like this was a homeless individuals homeless families are kind of different. I work with homeless single adults. Mm. And for the most part, in New York City at that time, all of the homeless single adults had serious mental health problems, yeah, right. Um, and it, I really came to see homelessness as a as a public health
1: problem, a mental health problem, yeah. The hint public health got it, yeah, oh, right, right. So
0: that's really sort of how yeah. I, I could have done social work, but I, I that's not really what I wanted to
1: do, yeah, because again, you're so it sounds. But it's funny you say like preventative. So it's kind of like you're thinking it does to me when I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, Anna's already starting to think about policy, public policy.
2: Yeah. Because I, I wouldn't
1: was. necessarily think that if you were to tell me you went and got a and master's in social work. Yeah. No,
2: that I think, I probably, to think be that's what clinical
1: Or yeah. much more kind of like working with the, like you would have had that experience and you'd be like, I wanna work with these families. Like I wanna, yeah. but that's not what you thought. So something else is going on. So you're thinking, I want to do what?
0: Yeah, so I think I really was interested in policy okay. already then,
1: yeah. yeah. And that makes the master's of public health make a lot of sense. Correct, yeah. I see. so where'd you end up going? Harvard?
0: So to Harvard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. and I got a master's in health policy and administration. Yeah. And then I moved to DC, I worked for Mathematica Policy oh, Research for okay. two years. And uh, I learned a lot about um, policy research.
1: And so, are and you getting like a quantitative training at the Masters of Public Health when you went? Yeah, so
0: that's where I really took my first uh, micro theory class and oh, my first okay. statistics class.
1: Oh, so I
0: took biostatistics and micro theory there. Yeah. And when I worked at Mathematica, I worked with a lot of economists. Oh. So most of the senior researchers at Mathematica were economists by training.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so that's where I really got exposure to the way economists think about research and policy evaluation. And it was then that I decided I wanted to go back and get a PhD in economics.
1: Okay. So what was it? What, what, what's the deal? Why do you like economics at this point?
0: Again, you know, they're, they're, the senior researchers at Mathematica were either economists or sociologists or political scientists. And I just felt like the economists had a very clear way in which they sort of set up problems. And I think that goes back to sort of, you know, economic models of decision-making. Yeah. right? And it just struck me that that was a very that was just a very good way to conceptualize almost any problem Mm. and I also liked the way they thought about data Mm. um so so really and I think the people that I worked most closely with and came to admire were all economists so that's sort of how that
1: how long were you there were you doing kind of public policy stuff at Mathematica?
0: Yeah, so I was doing a lot of evaluations of like Medicaid programs, oh. and uh, yeah, so various, in particular, you know, Medicaid managed care, sort of moving from a different financing model yeah. for Medicaid, and evaluating that in various settings and writing up policy briefs. So that you know, God, it was either two or three years. I can't really remember. Maybe three years. I think it was there three years. And then I went back to graduate school.
1: And then you go to UCLA.
0: And then I went to UCLA. Who that-
1: did you end up st- did, am I right that you were working mainly with did, Janet Curry? Was, yes. So Janet Curry pretty was pretty closely there. with her? Yeah. She yeah. was my
0: main advisor. The other folks I worked with were Joe Hutz and Jeff Gragger. And,
1: and who was the... the who? Jeff Gragger. Oh, and Jeff Gragger. None of whom
0: are there anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You know, did you... I'm just kind of curious you know uh I sort of associate you a lot with you know because I like wrote that book on the on causal inference I'm like obsessed with the causal inference stuff and like all these like weird ways like with all the people I'm like and I see like Princeton industrial relations section card Angrist etc and I see Janet Curry and then I see you at UCLA and I associate you so much with like that kind of like methodological approach especially for some of the some of the papers that I've known really well Uh did you get a sense when you were at UCLA like oh this is like causal inference this is different like you know this is the credibility revolution or was it just really subtle or like this is just like this is just how you do empirical work
0: that's a great question so I should also say that my first year econometrics teacher was Hito Imbins.
1: Was it really? Yeah, Hito oh was at gosh, UCLA oh, for
0: wow. a short period of time. And I was lucky enough that he was there when I was there. So he oh. taught me in my first and my second years. So oh. of course he you know, was very much a big part of this. Um, oh. And actually Enrico Moretti was also at UCLA when I was oh. there, so I took courses with him. Um, so I think between Janet, Hito, Enrico uh, and Joe, Mm -hmm. but you know they were really kind of in the thick of it and that was just that was the way it was done
1: that was the way it was done
0: that was the way it was done
1: yeah what did you learn what do you think what do you think you what what do you think the like salient concepts were that had you I mean this is like a make make make-believe right but I'm just saying like had you gone to a different school that where you didn't have any of those people what do you think like the salient econometric causal inference kind of things were to you that you were like, oh, this is what I, this is what I, I notice I keep doing over and over again, or keep thinking about.
0: Hmm. Well, I would say that the method was in service to the question.
2: Mm. So,
0: you know, one thing I feel as though I'm seeing it more these days is people have an ex- they find an experiment, a natural experiment, and then they figure out the question. And that's right. not how you, that's, that's not how I remember it. Right. Right. I mean, you, you sort of, you had the question and then the method was in service to that question. Mm. And I worry that that's getting a little bit lost these days yeah. that people yeah. kind of have the experiment and then they're searching for the question. Right. And I think that's, less
1: that ends up being less interesting and less yeah. important uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah there, there were certain economists i think that were so successful as kind of like approaching it that way and you know it it, it seems like it was kind of cut both ways because it seems like causal inference kind of grew on the back uh, like that kind of applied causal inference kind of grew on the back of like that kind of natural experiment first but it almost becomes like this like to a kid with a hammer everything's a nail and so they're like it's just kind of like look through the newspaper look for look for a uh look for a uh natural experiment what can i do yeah. what can i how yeah. can i uh do this how can i yeah. and it is funny it's like it does feel like i don't think it's as satisfying too just mm-hmm. even emotionally you know you think about i mean i guess you can find discoveries that way like you were but it does feel like you don't end up building up all the human capital with like with like the the importance of that question. Yeah. Yeah, cuz you're almost like it's almost kind of like you're like, well how can I make this question really important as opposed yeah. to it is important. Right. What were right. you studying? So you were studying, I mean, I know what you were studying, but like what it, so at at UCLA, like what what was the question that you were really like captivated about?
0: So I was really focused on health. And you have to remember I had just I done a masters in public health and I just worked at Mathematica. So I was really focused on health. So really all of my my dissertation was on health. So um, my main dissertation chapter was actually on um, Medicaid in California. Mm. And it was on the importance of um, enrolling kids early in Medicaid. I don't don't know if you know much about the Medicaid program, but it's, uh, there are many kids, 60% of kids who are uninsured are actually eligible for the Medicaid program, but not enrolled in the Medicaid program. Mm. And that's partly because- 60%? Yeah. Wow. So most, I mean, we could reduce the number of kids uh, who are uninsured in this country by more than half if we just enrolled all those kids who are eligible for Medicaid in the program. Yeah. And part you
1: of the- We saw that kind of in that Oregon Medicaid experiment
0: yeah so so yeah so this the Oregon was mostly adults and so I don't Mm know I don't know how these numbers differ for adults and kids I'm really more focused on kids but it's probably it's it's partly by design because Medicaid is a program if you show up at the hospital you don't have insurance and you're eligible for Medicaid the hospital will enroll you and most people know that yeah Mm -hmm. I mean because they have every interest yeah you know they they want to get paid so right. they'll enroll you in the Medicaid program. But, you know, there's a cost to that because what that means is that kids, you know, if parents know that once they go to the hospital, their kid will be involved in the Medicaid program should they need hospitalization, they don't end up getting them enrolled prior to that. So they miss out on sort of the ambulatory preventative care yeah. that might prevent them from being hospitalized to right. begin with. Right. And that's partly you know, because of the structure of the program, but that's also because the states made it difficult for kids to enroll in the Medicaid program. So in California, there was a big change. The the application for Medicaid used to be 20 pages long. Mm. Imagine that, right? They cut it down to four, right? What kind of stuff are they
1: asking on those 20 pages?
0: Who knows? Who knows what they're asking?
1: Good grief.
0: But, you know, I mean, they're wanting them
1: on there. Are they screening them out? Or are they just like... Well, I mean, like, I think
0: I think that's partly what they were trying to do, right?
1: Because it's expensive. So these like,
0: expensive. you've got some yeah. of these
1: legislators, they're like, you know, this is expensive and I don't even want to do this. So yeah. add, add a dozen pages.
0: Yeah. So I just make it hard. Right. Now, what happened was in 97 was the Child Health Insurance Program, CHIP. Yeah. And they said, if you want CHIP money, so that's federal money to insure more kids, if you want CHIP money, federal money, you are going to have to enroll more kids in the Medicaid program. You have to do outreach. Mm. And so the states actually were kind of forced. And that's actually what prompted California to to go from a 20-page application to a four-page application. And they also spent about $20 million on advertisement and, um, you know, basically training community-based organizations in how to complete a Medicaid application. Yeah. So they train them to help, you know, here, you know, you can help your clients enroll in Medicaid and it, for every application that you help that ends up getting onto the Medicaid program will give you 50 bucks. Yeah. So wow. they actually, and this really mattered. A lot of kids started enrolling in the Medicaid program who otherwise wouldn't, particularly Hispanic and Asian American kids.
1: Is this what your dissertation ends up being about? This
0: is what my dissertation is about. <laughs>
1: on the payment, on both the shortening and the payment?
0: So it was basically, once they started doing this, Yeah. you started seeing big increases in the number of kids who enrolled in the Medicaid program.
2: Yeah.
0: And you saw declines in hospitalizations for things like asthma.
2: Yeah.
0: Asthma uh-huh. is a condition for which if you're being seen and treated yeah. on an ambulatory basis, you shouldn't end up in the hospital. Oh.
1: Wait, so what's your control group and all this stuff?
0: So basically what you're seeing is this, what the state did was they kind of targeted different areas and provided training to those community-based organizations in how to complete a medicaid application. And so they gave me all that data.
1: Get out of so here. I, I had Were you all doing the some data. IV thing? You're doing some yeah, IV, yeah,
0: so it was, it was, you know, basically if you live in a neighborhood, yeah. Where a community-based organization had already been trained, yeah, then you were much more likely to be enrolled in the Medicaid program. Oh my god! So
1: cool. Were you excited when you found that? I was
0: super excited. I I bet super excited. And you know, this was so old. I was begging Medicaid to send me this data. Yeah. Begging, 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 and they weren't really answering. And then one day, Janet came in. to to the office where all the graduate students sit. And she said, I think I got this fax for you. She handed this like 20 page fax
2: Uh that
0: has all the data Uh on when the community, what community-based organization got trained and when.
1: Okay, Anna, so, here, I want to ask a meta question real quick. So the, we, you just kind of said like, you know, some, these days people maybe start with natural experiment first, but originally it was question first. Okay. De- not devil's advocate, but just kind of like a statement of facts that the, the, the one reason they may do that is because like, when you find these, these kinds of natural experiments or whatever, it almost just feels like, almost itself random. You're like, you weren't even really looking for it. You're like, you read something in the newspaper and you're like, Oh my gosh, they're doing this weird thing. Right. And the, the risk of like going question first is like, you could have this incredibly important question, like, you know, the, the Medicaid project payment thing. And you're like, I don't have a, you know, if, if everybody in my department, I've got like Hito Imbens and, and Moretti and, and Curry who are kind of like to answer a question either subtly or not so subtly or like, to answer a question is kind of going to require this credible design, and we really need you to, to staple this dissertation together. You're going to have to have a credible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it you seems have really have risky. Lot. It seems yeah. Really I think
0: I think you have to have lots of ideas.
1: You have to have lots of ideas. I think
0: you have lots of ideas, and I actually, my, my you know a good friend of mine in graduate school was Enrico's Moretti's um, RA, and he told me that Enrico had tons of ideas. Mm. And he would have Wes, this is my friend, his RA, would just kind of do some some really quick takes on all of these ideas.
1: Mm. And
0: if there was something there, he'd pursue it. But if there was nothing there, he'd drop it.
1: What does that mean? Nothing there, something there.
0: Well, you know, if you, you know, if you can't either if you can't find exogenous variation or the exogenous variation doesn't actually work, you know, you don't have the first stage. Right. You know, he'd just drop it and move on to something else.
1: You got to be, that's a skill, right? That's kind of uh, like, that's well, almost like some like therapeutic skill, like to hold, be excited about something and willing to let it go.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that's right. I Do think you have a lot of ideas. I, yeah, I had a lot of ideas. It never worked out.
1: They never worked out. <laughs> yeah. And that's normal.
0: I think that's normal.
1: Yeah. That's not I a bad that,
0: thing. I think that's how research should go.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think I, I in fact, i I probably, I'm not as good as Enrico. I probably hold on to things for longer than I should.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's really, boy, where'd you end up publishing that work? I should know this, but I but I don't so know.
0: that published in ReStat, Review of Economics Institute. Oh, what a
1: cool. So what'd you end up finding?
0: So what I end up finding is if you, you know, pay these organizations to enroll, well, kind of a couple of things, advertisement, you know, just kind of blanketing the television and radio with. You know, information. You know, sign up for Medicaid, sign up for CHIP. That does not work at all.
1: Doesn't what work. Do, no, Advertising doesn't, doesn't work.
0: Doesn't work. It doesn't work. What works is having these community-based organizations help families complete mm-hmm. the application. That's you know, incredible. that's like
1: a supply-demand kind of philosophy that you see in drugs too. It's like um, Mark Anderson has this paper on uh, meth. And they would post these advertisements of people that hadn't like were addicted to meth. There was like, you know, they like look horrible. You know, these like, they like lose their teeth and all this stuff. Yeah. They didn't do anything.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's like, you know, because I think you're talking, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you're talking about a group of people. They're like, they need more assistance. Yeah, they need, they need somebody, you know, you think about that thing you were saying earlier about like these kids that are higher income versus lower income. It's like, when I said there were 10,000 steps that the, the higher income people had, it wasn't really like the kids. It was like external forces that were like in, investing, like going after them. Yeah. You know, right. and it seems like it seems like incentives are like need to be targeted to people to like go after. Because yeah. for whatever reason, that's like whatever reason it is not enough to just simply have it you you need people going in and 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 like helping along the way.
0: Right. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Wow. Any support. Any support. Yeah. So you, so okay. So uh, that is amazing. That is that is a great. What a. I bet. I mean. I bet your advisors were so proud of you for that project. <laughs> I don't know. I think I mean, so.
0: You hope so, but yeah. I mean, that'd be icing on the cake. Yeah. Uh, right.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I guess that's not super important but no, I mean,
0: still. yeah, it is you you do always want your advisor. I mean, I had a tremendous respect for all my advisors, so yeah, I'd be very pleased if they they liked the work that I did. yeah, they like- yeah so so basically, you know, states did spend this money to enroll kids early. Mm-hmm. but it paid off because it meant that they were less likely to be hospitalized.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know,
0: so in fact, some of these some of them, These programs can be very much cost effective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I was, I had like, but I had told myself, I was like, well, I'm going to ask Anna about the juvenile incarceration paper with Joe Doyle. And then I was going to ask her about domestic violence. And I feel like I've got to make a hard choice now because I don't have a lot of time. So I was kind of thinking, well, uh, let's see how this goes. And then we can say it. So, domestic violence. First thing, first thing I want to ask is, how did you get interested in that topic, and when did it start? Because I guess it's not st- is is it really like, in a way, I can almost imagine. Oh, you've been thinking about domestic violence forever.
0: Yeah. So I've been I thinking actually, about women
1: ever since college.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> right. And
0: made that connection. Um, so this was basically my first big project after I started at Brown. Mm. Right. So after my dissertation, I was kind of thinking, okay, what's my next? Big project going to be, and I think that's that's a very important decision for junior faculty to yeah. think about. You know, after you finish publishing your dissertation, you got to think about what's my next big project. Right. And because it takes so long to publish anything in yeah. economics, you know that's really going to matter a lot. Uh, that might be the only thing you publish before you come up for tenure. Right. Given how long, and so. Um, I was thinking about it and I just felt like I didn't have a clear question in mind, but I, you know, just kind of in looking at the numbers, it's incredibly prevalent, you know, domestic violence, right? And, but it's also shown some pretty encouraging trends, right? So domestic violence against women has been declining pretty significantly. Mm. In the US, I think about, I haven't looked the number up recently, but it was about a thousand women a year were being killed. And so many more are actually are are victims of domestic violence. And if you look at like, uh, you know, victimization surveys, you know, one in between one and three and one in four women in the U.S. report ever being the victim of domestic violence. It's it's really prevalent. Mm. Um, And it was just struck me like this is a big problem and I don't know how to answer it, but we should know more about it. Yeah. Given just how prevalent it is. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I started. I have a good friend from high school, and she's a lawyer in New York City, and she was working with victims of domestic violence. Mm. Um, and what struck me, you know, she's a lawyer by training, you know, she used to say these women have nothing. They have no resources, they right. are so poor. Right. And so it mm. just that kind of, you know, to me, just sort of made me think about, okay, I need to start thinking about income and resources and poverty and domestic violence, because clearly, uh, you know, that's a big part of this.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's so funny, like, I feel like you and I uh, ended up responding to the bargaining Uh theory theory papers in the exact same way, because like, that's like, when I was studying uh, a lot of my stuff on uh couples and things and like you know bad behavior on the part of the men uh, i was always thinking about sex ratios in the yeah. marriage market yeah. and uh and just like um and why i was thinking about that was the ability to exit the 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 partnership could be really really important and i was uh-huh. curious like when you know you can talk about people not having resources and not necessarily be thinking in terms of like one of these like Nash bargaining, you know, like Manstrom Brown and McElroy and Horn and, and Shelley Loomberg kinds of ways of thinking. I was curious, like, were you, were you were you thinking about those theory papers a lot or am I just projecting?
0: Well, I mean, again, you know, it first started with this idea that, and so I had this friend again, who was working and, you know, telling me, you know, just just how poor many of the, the women she was working with were. And then once you actually look at the statistics, the survey statistics, it's true that any woman can be a victim of domestic violence, but it is really a poor woman's problem. Yeah. You know, so it's very clear to me that poverty has a lot to do with it. Mm. And, it, you know, it, it's because these women have no other uh many of these women have no other source of support yeah you know they have low levels of schooling they have um few prospects in the labor market
1: yeah
0: and they're really stuck
1: yeah
0: and that is ultimately
1: as in cannot leave
0: cannot leave i mean they have a very because
1: that's the solution
0: that i mean that's the that's yes. one of the,
1: that's one of the most important solutions, which is probably you need to leave the relationship.
0: Yeah. Or you need to be able to threaten to leave.
1: You need to be able to threaten to leave. How, else, yeah. how important do you think the credible threat is? Cause you're, I, my, my sense is like, that's like to an economist. Cause they're like yeah. used to thinking about unions and stuff. They're like yeah. oh, credible threats. Like that's all you got yeah. to do it. And I, and I feel like, I don't, I don't know if that really works. Like you I, I actually right. think like, I actually think it's like, the, the truth is you're going to have to leave because the, and, and maybe there's some marginal guy, right? We're talking about the marginal guy, but like the, 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 whatever, that's the infra marginal, whatever the extensive yeah. marginal guy is like, he's like got narcissism, personality disorder, substance abuse problems. Yeah. He's, he has, right. he's got major, major problems. And that stuff is very inelastic to everything.
0: Yeah, you may be right. There's, you know, I don't, I can't answer this because I don't, I don't know for sure. At the same time, I remember talking to, uh, you know, some folks about this and their feeling was that it's all kind of a continuum of a bad relationship. Violence may be one extreme, Mm -hmm. but, you know, relationships have ebbs and flows. They can be better at some points and worse at others um and so they did feel as though a relationship wasn't didn't always have to be violent mm-hmm. right that you yeah. could have relationships that were violent at one point but then were no longer of course you you also have relationships in which that's not the case and the only solution is to leave yeah, yeah, yeah. uh but there could very well be relationships that um where you can have better and worse periods yeah but yeah, yeah. you
1: right. know yeah the reason why i bring it up is because i feel like I feel like these days you hear a lot about mental health kinds of, we hear about mental health period, but like, Mm -hmm. uh, in domestic violence, there'll be also an emerging story of the narcissist. Yeah. Narcissist personality disorder. And I, and I've been always lately thinking, I'm like, you know, I wonder if this is true. Cause like the story, anecdotally what you see a lot is how manipulative, uh, that's like a very judgmental way of putting it, but I don't know how to say it, how manipulative one of the person can be towards the other where they're like, well, if you loved me, you know, they get all this like trapped up stories about love. Yeah. You what know, love yeah. becoming almost this uh, story. Yeah. You know? And and um, I've wondered for those people that can't or won't, it's actually won't, right? They can leave. So it's like, it's more of like, I mean, there are some people they will be literally harmed if they leave. So I'm not talking yeah. about those people, but I mean, like, the person that literally you're watching an equilibrium where they don't leave. I've wondered lately if it's like they, their view, the victim is all tangled up with loyalty and love. And it's taken advantage of by a person that, that they, they don't, no one can tell them not to love this person. Yeah. That's like nobody's business. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean,
0: it's, it is a really complicated
1: thing. It is so complicated.
0: Yeah,
1: It is so complicated, especially when it's like, yeah. I mean, finding the policies that, that provide resources to a person, especially if it's like, you know, some of that might be a person that's at those earlier ebbs too. you know, those earlier ebbs in the, yeah. in the bad relationship. And you're like, Well, some people may not be ready to leave yet. All right. You know,
0: I mean, this is the sort of thing where I do think the right policy response is providing resources to women, but also probably interventions aimed at the assailant Yeah, is probably going to be just as effective. Sorry, my phone is ringing. That's okay. Hello. Yeah. Sorry about that. I thought it might yeah. be my kids. Um yeah.
1: I wonder about these battery, you know, the, these battery courts Have you heard about these? These debris. Yeah, courts? I mean they're I, I wonder if they are what what uh yeah you know about those.
0: Yeah, not a lot, I would say.
1: Yeah, I don't think actually. we yeah. 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 I I mean I think this is like such a these issues of, of poverty and, and mental health and yeah. all of these things inter, interacting uh, to in order to get, you know, healing and health, uh, healthy, meaningful lives to all, everyone is, 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 uh, I do think this is something that economists can offer, but yeah. it, it, it's not something that uh, I wouldn't say there's a ton of people. You're, you're one of the, you're not, you're one of a small number of people working on domestic violence. Yeah, Seems like. it's,
0: it's very hard. I mean, it's a really, it's a very hard thing to study. You know, data is very difficult to come by for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. for, for good reason, right? I mean, this is, this is data that needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Glenn, Jens Ludwig and the, the crime lab in Chicago, I mean, they're trying to do, they're doing work around violence reduction more generally,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: probably many of those principles and findings probably relate to domestic violence as well. You know, kind
2: mm-hmm.
0: of changing the behavior of young people so that they are less quick to react right. uh, and less quick to react in a violent way when they do would probably have some pretty important spillovers to domestic violence as well, yeah.
2: I think.
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. so i think
0: there are ways to reduce violence more generally that would probably yeah. apply to the setting of domestic violence
1: yeah you know it's funny like going back now circling back to that judge who threatens with higher penalties you know i i i think like economists when they think about violence and things like that a lot lot you're, you're an exception for thinking about outside options and stuff like that but like the um they're they're so the shadow of Gary Becker's deterrence yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. yeah, it's like the it, it can just be this like straitjacket for a lot of people because yeah. they're like they just only think in terms of relative price changes on the punishment margins. Yeah, and you know when you when you talk to psychologists or you read that psychology literature about uh, narcissism or borderline personality disorder or substance abuse, you're you're talking about a group of people that are like. For variety of reasons, have really low discount rates, or just like have beliefs that things don't apply to them, or like in no uncertain terms, like the elasticities of violent behavior with respect to some you know unknown punishment that you don't even know if it's going to real. It's like it just seems like we don't really know, but yeah, really big.
0: Yeah. So there was this criminologist named Mark Kleiman. Do you know? Oh yeah, Mark Kleiman.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, his big thing was. It should be swift, sure, and short. Yeah. Right. That that's how we should do um, punishment. Yeah. That's right. you know that's a very different you know he he felt as if that would be that would be far preferable to the system in which there's uncertainty. But if <laughs> you know doesn't work out you're going to spend a lot of time in jail like he thought the that thing was is though you know
1: swift certain and did you say short short yeah well with prison sentences lingering on your record it is by definition never short
2: yeah
1: yeah you you, you face these labor market scarrings and yeah. you know you can't get housing yeah you can't get jobs and that does not go away
2: mm-hmm. right so even
1: if the prison sentence is short The person, this is just the, I just feel like this is the tension around violence in the country, which is like punishment has so many margins where it is permanent.
0: Yeah.
1: It's got so many margins and it, it, and just being in a cage is only one of them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, particularly for young people, jail is incredibly scarring.
1: Incredibly scarring. Incredibly scarring. Uh, it, you know, we, we've been studying suicide attempts in the jail and we, we, yes uh, that's right yeah, we, we walked the jail, uh, for this one particular jail. I have never in my life seen anything like that. I've been working on this project for four years. I did, hadn't walked to the jail. I don't know. It didn't, it's not the first thing that came to my mind. And so the team finally walked the jail We spent the whole day there. And, um, you know, the, the jails have so much mental illness in it. And they just are in it's not even cages. It's like a uh, a cage has, you know air gets in. Yeah, you know, like it's like a sealed box. It's like Houdini's, you know, box. And they they stay there. And for a variety of regulatory reasons and so forth, they uh, they stay in there, um, can't have a lot of materials if they are, you know, at risk, if they've come in with like psychosis because of substance abuse or underlying mental illness stuff, they might get moved into certain types of physical quarters. Yeah. I just can't even imagine. Yeah. just in an hour. Yeah. Let alone. And that's just jail. That's not yeah. even prison. Yeah. It's just, it's just absolutely uh, a trauma box,
0: yeah.
1: you know, and you come and that, you know, and this is unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about your paper with Joe Doyle on the juvenile incarceration, but every time I teach that juvenile incarceration paper where kids were incarcerated as a, as a young person and then end up not going back. It's not even the future prison part. It's the not going back to high school.
2: And and then
1: when they go back, they're labeled with a behavioral emotional disorder. It's like, it's it's really like anybody that's had any exposure to a kid involved in corrections. You're like, oh, I know exactly what that is. They were traumatized. Mm -hmm. That's not, it's not, there's no like, you don't even have to come up with some exotic economic theory. Like they they were traumatized. They can't, that's why they come back to school with a behavioral emotional disorder. It is endogenous. Yep. That that paper is one of the most important papers uh, I have personally ever read. Uh, I get I teach it nonstop and I've even cried teaching it in class. I get so emotional when I get to that that part, because I don't know about you, but it seems like it's really hard not to come away with like a lot of papers you read. You're like, well, we're not really sure you know, exactly all to make of it. But when I read that paper that you wrote, I just think, especially when you kind of think about the leniency design, I just think these kids probably didn't need to go to prison.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And it's just like, I don't see, what else are you going to say? They, go, yeah. they end up committing more crimes. Yeah. And they are not going back to school.
2: Yeah.
1: How, how, how was this the policy goal? Yeah. What was it like writing that paper when you started to realize? Oh, well, I mean,
0: it was, was very, so we, I mean, Again, I, when I worked in this Alternative to Incarceration program, we had kids come into the program who had spent some time in jail. And we had kids who had spent very little time, you know, maybe just a night.
2: Yeah.
0: And the kids who had spent even just like three weeks in jail, they always did worse in the program. Always. it was a, It was a known fact. The program knew it. And... The question was, well, are these kids somehow different? I mean, there was a reason why they were in jail and these other kids weren't. And is that why they do worse in the program? You know, maybe they're in jail because uh, their family didn't show up for them in court. They couldn't make bail. Or was it something about spending three weeks in jail that just made it impossible for them to complete the program? Yeah. And so this was a big question that was on everybody's mind. We, all, yeah. we talked about this quite a bit uh, at the program and we didn't know the answer. Yeah. And when I finally you know, found, figured out how to do it, um, working with Joe, uh, you know, I, I really I wanted to know the answer to a question that I had been thinking about for over a decade.
1: Gosh, you must, I mean, were you emotionally upset when you started to see coefficients get really big? It
0: wasn't, it really was not surprising because (sighs) it really wasn't because these are kids who are only marginally attached to school, Yeah. right? These are not the kids who were, you know, doing, you know, going to school, doing well in school. Uh, These are kids who are not Mm -hmm. really, that attached to school for whatever reason.
2: Yeah. And so
0: you take them out, even for a month. Yeah. They're not going to go back. I mean, <sighs> it's kind of obvious. Yeah. So, you know, we saw that in the program. A lot of kids, what they ended up doing was moving a lot of kids from school to GED
2: mm-hmm.
0: because they just were not, they had not been involved in school. They were not involved in school. It just, was much more likely that they would be able to complete a GED than actually go back to high school and finish.
1: Your paper like, uh, you know, it, it, it like hit home for personal reasons is like, we, we had like an event happen and then it's like, I literally was like, I wrote I wrote a professor. I was like, this thing had happened. And I was like, the Anna and Joe find this result. And I just think like, I feel, you know, hopeless. And, um, and so, uh, I've like, there's like this kid in town and, uh, I like raised money for him. I mean, basically I I was like, you just got to do everything in your power to not let them spend an extra minute in jail and all this like scared straight stuff that parents get into it too.
2: Yeah.
1: They're like, they're kind of like exhausted. They're like, well, he's got to learn his lesson. Nobody learns a damn thing in jail. They don't learn a lesson. I mean, I know it's like. Cause you're just so hopeless. You're like, you start grasping at straws and people will tell you that might happen. Right. Yeah. And, and I just kind of keep thinking to myself, look, just get them out of jail. And then just like, just let the net, like whatever the folklore is, like let the folklore about how to help a kid happen outside of jail.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like just like sure. get, get them out of jail, and then just like let the the next thing. But the thing yeah. is, they need they need so much help. Yeah. They need so the, the, these kids that get it up getting tangled up with like they, they do these petty larceny things. They're on they're high on Xanax and they like you know do these petty larceny things, and it just starts you know adding up. And you're like, you get them out, and you just realize you're like, oh, okay, now where's the the massive infrastructure to help them? And yeah. you're like, there's not one. So then they yeah. just keep getting arrested and keep getting arrested. And you're just yep. feel like, then then you're kind of like going, well, how many lottery tickets do I have? How many lottery tickets is the optimal number of lottery tickets to always be buying so that you're diversifying so that one time maybe it clicks and you're just yep. like, I don't have the budget constraint for it. Yep you know i mean it does yeah. seem like it's just it is very i find it hard to be hopeful sometimes mm-hmm. you know when you work on these projects that i think that's part of it like when you work on projects around violence and kids and like jail it 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 can it can make you hope it can make you feel hopeless i actually kind of even with your paper just kind of feel like I'm like, okay, the goal needs to be to avoid this. Like, but then you just think, but nobody's listening to an economist.
0: Well, you should, well, a couple of things. The rate of juvenile detention has been falling pretty steadily. Mm -hmm. It's very, the trends look very different from adult incarceration and detention, Mm -hmm. which have only started to fall more recently.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Juvenile detention and incarceration has been falling. And Actually, I was speaking with some policymakers who said that uh, a 2013 National Academy of Sciences report on juvenile detention was really very impactful Mm. and that it made very clear that um, detaining and incarcerating youth was a terrible idea. Mm. And uh, so lots of things have have changed in response. Mm. And the federal policy in this space is to do what everything can be done to reduce the number of kids that are that are detained and incarcerated. Yeah. Now, most of these kids are being detained and incarcerated in local and state
2: yeah.
0: jails and prisons. Right. Mm-hmm. The federal government isn't, isn't actually jailing people, so their policy levers are more limited. Right. Um, But policy makers, at least at the federal level and increasingly at the state and local level, do understand that incarcerating youth is a bad idea Yeah, and uh, rates have been falling. Yeah. So that's the good news.
1: Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things this in this podcast series I've been like kind of gradually beginning to focus on is how so much of changing policy from the perspective of the individual scientist is the long game. Yeah, you know, and you're like, you 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 are doing things and and just kind of almost knowing that this is a part of a larger process that takes a long time, and the work matters. Yeah, you know, it it matters. It's important, you know, to be uh, to 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 tell the truth and do good work and uh you know do your best, even to get it published in the top journal so that people take it really seriously. Yeah, too it's really so, you know, uh, is so nice to talk. Uh, I really mean it. I've like, you know, felt just such a strong kind of inspiration and, and things that I've learned from you and how you do ask questions and how you answer them. And, and, you know, I watch you get administrative data. That was the thing with that Joe Doyle paper. I watch you get administrative data. I think, oh, I could get administrative, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I've, I, it's, it's really, really been, you know, for me personally, just uh looking, I, I kind of have watched you be an economist and just sort of use it to kind of navigate a little bit about like, okay, it, it, Anna's doing this and it's possible to do this. Yeah. You know,
0: I I gotta give a shout out to Joe Doyle because he yeah. was the one that was able to access that Chicago data.
1: Golly, just I mean, just all that linking. Yeah. It seems like yeah. it's an early linking paper even.
0: Yeah. Shout out to Joe more generally. He was a yeah. great great co author on that yeah. on that project.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And yeah, let,
0: thank you, Scott.
1: Let me. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye.